Well, good morning, whether you're in person or on Zoom. It's good to be worshiping the Lord with you. I hope that if you're in person, you found a little patch of sunlight. Otherwise, you're probably a bit cold right now, I imagine. Um, people have started to ask what we're going to do when it gets cold. Um, and the answer for right now is this. <laughs> if you'd go ahead and invest in warm clothes if you don't have them, and in some foot warmers and hand warmers, that would be a good thing to do. We, we know from all that we read about what's going on right now that it is safer to be out here in this way. And look, we know that as Christians, part of being human is being able to see people, communicate with each other. As wonderful as Zoom is, we're so glad that we have it. It is not sustainable as a means of walking with God and walking in community for an extended period of time. Now, we also know there, there are several people in our church, probably more than several, who are caretakers to others right now and have to be extremely cautious because they would hate to bear the burden of making a family member sick if they were not cautious. And so what we're trying to do with our services right now is create a space where anyone can come and know that they can feel comfortable that they can be in the presence of others, even at a distance. They can still feel the presence of people, sing together, and experience the joy of Christ um, and being together, even during a difficult time. That's what we're trying to create. We know that for many, that they still need to be extremely cautious. But uh, just to remind us as a whole group, what we're trying to do is serve even the weakest of each other or the most vulnerable of each other during this season. And so even if you feel extremely comfortable, I'd urge you, um, be aware of others and consider them, uh, in the words of Scripture, more significant than, than yourself um, during this time. All right, we're going to jump right into this parable that I've just read for us from Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to walk us back through the parable, and then we're going to uh, use it like a mirror to take a look at our own lives. This is a story about stewardship, how we as human beings use the things that are entrusted to us. Now, it shows us that how we view God, the way that we see God, affects the kind of stewards that we become. So this parable rises and falls on the character of the master. And the master, in some way, represents God the Father and Jesus himself. What type of person is this master? Is he who the third servant says he is? A hard man, a man who reaps where he doesn't sow, who gathers where he has not scattered seed. Is that who he is? To a lesser extent, the parable also rises and falls on the character of that servant. What type of person is he? Can his word about the master be trusted? The other servants, as I hope you'll see, don't seem to feel this way about their master. They don't seem to think that he's a hard man who's, who reaps where he hasn't scattered seed. So who are we to believe? The story begins with the master leaving to go on a long trip. And as he leaves, he entrusts his property to his servants. Now, all of us know that this is a, an incredible act of trust. Many of you, some of you have um, farmettes. I was talking to Kyle Coleman recently, and he was talking about how difficult it can be with 15 acres and projects to go on a trip. They had chickens that were born while they were away, and the neighbors were like, we're not taking care of your farm again. <laughs> it, 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 it is a big act of trust to place everything you own in the hand of others. 
Now the master also gives them money to further his work while he's away. And the amount he gives them is not small change. A talent is 6,000 denarii, which was the day's wage. So he gives one of them five talents, one of them two, another one. So even for the last servant, that's over 16 years worth of wages. It's not bad, huh? Who is this master that's doling out huge amounts of money to these servants? And what is it that he expects of these servants? What kind of trust does he put in them? Now, there's this little detail that each of the servants is given according to his ability. It might sound like a throwaway detail, but it's not at all. For us, if a person receives more than us, so think about these three servants together being given different amounts, it would eat us up with comparison. Why does he get more than me? But there doesn't seem to be any concern over that issue here. The master has simply considered with each servant what's appropriate for them. He knows them. So he's able to give them what's right. Not too much. That would be overwhelming. Not too little. That would be discouraging. So this little detail too should make us think before we accept an accusation that this master is a hard man. So having entrusted the property and handed over his investment money, the master takes his leave. And he stays away for a long time, Jesus says. He doesn't rush back to micromanage. He doesn't keep the servants on a short leash. From all we can tell, he simply trusts them. And when he returns, he settles accounts. Now the first servant comes having doubled his talents. The second one, he's done the exact same. And the master says the same thing to both of them. Listen carefully to what he says. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now notice, he says nothing about the the specific amounts that each servant has made. There's nothing about that. There's still no uh, comparison between the servants. Well, he made this much. Why didn't you make that much? It's as if the exact amount of money doesn't even matter. What seems to matter is the servant's effort. They put the master's resources to good use. They've taken a risk and it's returned to them. So to prove even more that it's not about the money, the reward the master gives them is not more money. What's the reward he gives them? Enter into the joy of your master. The reward he gives them is his joy. It is oddly similar to the story of the prodigal son who returns to his father after having wasted his inheritance. The father throws this large celebration In fact, the parable of the talents that we're listening to, the whole story up until this point seems to be about the master training these servants to become more than servants. To become more like his children, rightful inheritors of his wealth. Now, from all we can tell, this is not a calculating and exacting kind of master. And that makes the third servant's response Very out of place. Before we get to his response, remember, we know that instead of investing the money like his co-servants, he went and dug a hole in the ground to hide it. And this already should raise some flags for us. 
two questions that it should bring up for us as we read this. The first question is, who's right? Either the first two servants are doing right by investing the money, or the third servant is by hiding it. Who is it? Either the master is this hard man and they should be very concerned about taking a risk with the money, or he's not a hard man. And they should feel the freedom to take a risk with it and to see what's gained. Now second, hiding things is rarely a good thing in the Gospels. Jesus says a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Most of the time, hiding something in the Gospels means you're a passive or you're ashamed. So what does Jesus say? He says he comes to reveal the things that are hidden, to expose them and shed light on them. So again, who's right? The servant or the, uh, this servant or the other two? And why is he hiding what his master gave him? So this servant comes forward upon his master's return and he says, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Hang on. Really? Is it true? The other servants did not seem to feel this way about their master. When he returned, they said this, you gave me this and look what I've done with it. And the master responded with sincere pride. Also, the master in this story only collects from people in whom he's really invested. He's invested in these servants. So he expects a return from them. The accusation does not add up. So the servant finishes with, I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Now we might want to feel some compassion for this servant. He's afraid. We've all been afraid too. We've been afraid of God. We've been afraid of others. Afraid of ourselves. But the servant also had something else that could help pull him out of his fear. If his fear was not based on something real. He also had the example of his co-servants to follow. If he was at all open to changing his mind about what he thought he knew about his master, he could have followed the other servant's example. They went and invested. Maybe I should too. His final words, here, have what is yours. They make you wonder whether this servant really wants anything to do with his master in the first place. He only takes the one talent out of a sense of obligation. And then he goes and he hides it away. Did he ever really have it in the first place? That talent's not doing anything for him. He disconnects from the master's property as quickly as he can. So the first two servants are learning to be heirs of their master. To do with his money what he wants done with it. He wants something produced with it. Fruit to be born from it. But this third servant, he seems to be just trying to get away from his master. And perhaps the worst part of what the third servant's done. He's defiantly chosen to believe what he wants to believe about his master, despite the testimony of others and evidence to the contrary. This master hasn't been hard on his first two servants. Why would he be hard on the third? Now, of course, the master's response to this third servant is what's difficult. 
This is what makes us wonder whether maybe he really is a hard man. He calls this servant wicked and slothful. And then he turns the man's words back on himself. You knew this about me, did you? Then why didn't you act on it? You could have at least walked to the bank and invested the money. You would have received a little return. Notice what he's saying. You could have done something. Instead, you did nothing. This is what's wrong. So then the master gives the talent to the first servant who has been faithful. To everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now the master then sends this servant into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You wish that Jesus sometimes would just end a story with they lived happily ever after, don't you? Is this further proof of the servant's claim that the master is a hard man? No. This is a problem right now in our cultural moment. Punishment, judgment of any kind are always bad unless we're the ones making the judgment. The master has not created a personal torture chamber. Darkness is the thing that God seeks to undo in the world. God seeks to shine his light into the darkness of the world. Humanity is the one that loves the darkness rather than the light. Humans are the ones who are unwilling to come to the light when it comes into the world. And weeping and gnashing of teeth... These are not about God sending in his trained torturers. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, these are the result of a life of regret. This is what a person does when they are grieved over how they have lived their lives. So if you live life adamantly believing that God is a terrible ogre, If you defiantly resist changing your mind, despite evidence to the contrary, you will find yourself in a place of darkness and misery. It will be one that you've played a part in creating. Hell, in this case, is a trajectory that people live on. And the master's joy, too, is a trajectory that people live on now. Okay. This is the story. How is it a mirror for us? God is inviting us as human beings, as a church, a local church, into a joint partnership with himself to produce fruit together for the life of the world. This is what this story is about. God is inviting us into a joint partnership with himself to produce fruit for the life of the world. This is what stewardship is. It is partnering with God to produce fruit for the life of the world. Our entire lives, our time, our skills, our finances, all of them are entrusted to us to be invested in his kingdom. And I want to quickly point out two things about this. One, God is a God of abundance, not of scarcity. God is a God of abundance, not of scarcity. He invites us into a promise of abundance. 
when we're willing to take the risk with the things that he gives us, invest and steward the things that we have, he promises to give us a return in joy and in abundance. This doesn't mean we will all have the same kind of abundance in the same things. Some of us are going to have plenty of money, but very little time. Some of us are going to have very little money, but we're going to have other kinds of abundance. Of time, possibly of heart, possibly in prayer. God does not promise that people have all that they need all on their own. You see what I mean here? He doesn't promise all of us as individuals, you will have all you need all by yourself. No. What God does promise is that together, as the people of God, we will have all that we need. Now to see this realized, we have to operate with the faith that God is a God of abundance. We have to take risk in giving of what we have and investing the resources that he has particularly given to us. Trusting that God is going to reward that back to us in some way. He is not a God of scarcity. He's a God of abundance. Now, I'm committing the unforgivable sin of preaching in part about money during church budget time. I hope that you'll forgive me and pray for me. We've tried to apply this perspective to our finances as a church we're going to present our budget today for the next year. We've slimmed up in some places because God does call us into wisdom. He does. But we've also taken steps of faith in other places. Because even in times and places where it feels like there's little, God is still inviting his people into his fullness. God is a God of abundance, not of scarcity. And that goes with the second point that I want to make here. Second, fear will undo us. Fear will undo us. Fear is assumed to be amoral, a weakness for sure, but something to have compassion on, to be patient with. And that's true to an extent. But there comes a point where fear paralyzes and completely distorts. It locks us into scarcity. We would rather do nothing than take a risk and change the status quo. When we embrace our fear as more real and more powerful than God, it becomes no longer amoral. It's a destructive force that we choose over God. I want to say it again. When we embrace our fear as more real and more powerful than God, it's no longer amoral. It's a destructive force that we choose over God. So God is inviting his people into a joint partnership with himself to produce fruit together for the life of the world. This is what God does. This is the kind of God he is. He creates and then he invites us into partnership. My goodness. <laughs> You want to wave again? Wave, wave. Okay. God invites us to take risks with the things he's given to us in the promise 
that he has an abundance to give us. Even more than we already have. If we're locked in fear, we reject the invitation to his abundance. We have no access to it. We simply will live in the dark when a a leap of faith will take us into a land of fullness, of joy. So I want to ask you, just to close, where are you? How are you doing as a partner with God in stewarding the things that He's given you? Are you taking risks to steward what you have? Trusting that He's going to give it back to you somehow? Or are you locked in fear? Now here's the beauty of this story. It is a story. God still gave that third servant a talent to work with. Right? That master was willing to hand something over to him, even though he knew there were questions about him. God has given you things. And even if you're locked in fear right now, you don't have to stay there. You can step out of that fear. You can step out of that prison that you've created for yourself and step into a new place of faith and abundance. And you can trust that God will be there. And like that master... God will say to you, he'll meet you when you take that leap, and he'll say, well done. You've been faithful with little. I'm going to put you over much now. Let's join with God as partners with him and producing fruit for his kingdom. Let's take the steps of faith together and trust that he's going to be there to meet us and to tell us, well done, good and faithful servant. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.